Thank you, Stan. And apologies for the lateness. I don't know why, but I was having um, connection problems. Okay, I'll begin with the Ukraine, not because um, anything particularly dramatic um, has happened so far, uh, more because um, we advertised <laughs> this week's um, online communist forum with a picture of um, the British Prime Minister and the Ukrainian President Zelensky and uh, Johnson. And so um, I feel sort of obliged uh, to begin with that. Um, what I can say is I've been looking at uh, various reports um, along with um, satellite uh, imagery, which purport to show, and uh, who am I to argue, uh, that um, the Russian army is establishing field hospitals. Um, obviously, that's something you need if you're going to engage in um, armed action. And also what they've been doing is mobilizing the military police from around Russia. Um, the significance of that, apparently, I'm no uh, military um, uh, expert, but apparently, at least according to the report I read, isn't to police so much the Russian army itself, although I'm sure they have that particular function. It's more that uh, the military police in the Russian army are trained to deal uh, with um, the population um, that's been taken. In other words, the army is advancing and um, what, its, uh, what its military police are designed for, apparently, is to keep not only the civilian population down, but to deal with uh, guerrilla um, operations, the left behinds, the either accidentally left behinds or the deliberately left behinds who, in, you know, who indulge in um, sabotage and uh, uh, other such uh, actions. What hasn't happened, uh, which if you're going to invade must happen, and that's the mobilization of the Air Force. You've got to have um, air superiority. You've got to knock out the Air Force of the other side. Um, and that means first and foremost, um, fighters um, and then bombers. Um, so maybe the bombers go first and uh, take out uh, airfields, but one presumes that the Ukrainian side put up fighters to knock down the, the bombers, have, therefore you need fighters. Anyway, they haven't done that yet. Um, I also read, again, I'm, I'm reading Western uh, sources, so I readily acknowledge that they've got a particular agenda and they're being fed this information uh, by the various agencies uh, crucially, uh, the US, they've got the satellites. Um, they'll be the ones that are releasing uh, these pictures. It's not the, um, the Russians that are releasing satellite pictures of field hospitals and uh, uh, reporting on uh, the movement of the military police. Um, what you've got along with that is a planned military exercise between Russian and Belarusian um, forces, uh, which are scheduled from the 10th to the 20th uh, of February. 
And the reason why I bring that up um, is because, at least according to Western sources, uh, there's a nod and a wink agreement between Xi and uh, Putin uh, not to do anything that will spoil the Beijing Olympics and uh, note that the Beijing Olympics are due to finish on the 20th. So, um, you know, it might be uh, that what you do, you, you um, have these exercises and these exercises are in reality um, preparation, pre-invasion pre preparations, maybe. From my own angle, again, non-military expert, uh, I, I don't see any prospect myself um, of um, Russia trying to conquer uh, the Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't think, it just doesn't make any sense uh, to me. It's possible, but as we all know uh, with such campaigns, they can go wrong. And also what we know of such campaigns is that you've got to you know, impose your occupation. So it's true that uh, when it comes to the United States, it can invade Afghanistan, it can invade in Iraq, and it can do it in amazingly short time. Uh, I was stunned uh, with Gulf War uh, to, you know, the, the short time uh, that it took. I mean, I was predicting days, uh, not in effect hours. So America can go in, it can get to Baghdad, it can pull that statue down, and it was definitely the Americans pulling it down. But then you've got to hold it. And that's precisely what uh, America couldn't do. Uh, we all remember the British uh, meant to go in with soft hats and uh, they're so used to colonial operations, they'll do brilliantly, ending up being confined in uh, a fort and, uh, with, alongside an airport. And that's all you can hold uh, in effect. Uh, the same applied um, in Afghanistan. You can hold Kabul, uh, but can you hold the countryside? No, uh, they couldn't. And that would apply in Ukraine. I would have thought many times over, you know, there is clearly a, um, a na um, um, and in existence, there's clearly a Ukrainian nationalism of a particular uh, fanatical uh, level. Why? Precisely because of the history of um, Russian uh, imperialism, and I'm talking about czarist imperialism. And then the experience, yes, of uh, the early Soviet Union, uh, Lenin didn't really predict that there would be uh, a Ukrainian national question. Reality showed him uh, otherwise. And that's really why uh, the Soviet Union uh, was formed. Uh, their original plan, the original plan of the Bolsheviks was for a centralized republic that would, uh, um, how should you put it, uh, allow different nations to secede, go for self-determination, but their model uh, wasn't a federal uh, republic. Uh, you can read Lenin right, all the, right up to 1917, attacking the idea uh, of federalism. Federalism is not our principle. Uh, this is alien uh, to Marxism. And in general, that's absolutely right. We do not favor federal republics, even though in the CPGB, we call for a federal republic of England, Scotland, and Wales. This is not the norm uh, for the Marxist program. Anyway, my point would be uh, that, uh, you know, what was in existence in the pre-revolutionary period and in the early revolutionary period was certainly 
compounded uh, by the treatment meted out, meted out uh, to the Ukrainian population, particularly when it came to collectivization. If you remember, uh, what we had is the expropriation of kulaks, um, but it wasn't only the kulaks uh, that suffered, all peasants suffered, and in particular people in Ukraine suffered. And, you know, we don't know the total death toll, but it clearly ran into the millions. I mean, figures I've read, three million maybe, uh, starved. Um, and starvation, remember, is a slow process. It goes hand in hand with disease. Either way, uh, we know that very large numbers of people died. And that in, in, in no small measure, not that we want to excuse it, but it explains why so many Ukrainians, at least initially, uh, welcomed uh, the German army uh, that was invading uh, the Soviet Union and why so many Ukrainians uh, volunteered uh, to fight along, um, alongside the Germans. Uh, they were disabused of that uh, by the treatment um, that the Nazis um, uh, went in for uh, in terms of um, the Ukrainians, let alone the Russians. Either way, uh, we need to understand that there does exist uh, that very strong uh, national feeling and it's based on history. So Ukraine isn't going to be an easy uh, pushover. It's a uh, um, uh, reasonably populated country, so 30 million or thereabouts, as far as I uh, remember. Um, it's true that in the East, um, there are these so-called uh, people's republics, but we would expect stiff resistance, not only from uh, the Ukrainian army, uh, but also uh, from the population um, in general. And, you know, the Russian high command will know that, um, Putin will know that, uh, and therefore, um, to amass 100,000 troops, well, you could get to Kiev, you could go into Kiev, but could you hold it? And my argument would be no, 100,000 troops aren't uh, enough. Um, so maybe they'll reinforce it. But that doesn't really strike me of what's at issue. What's at issue, as far as I can read it, is that uh, Russia uh, is uh, basically protesting uh, against any prospect of um, Ukraine joining NATO. That's not an immediate prospect, but they basically want to rule that out. And uh, there's been various deals uh, that have been negotiated, partially agreed, never implemented, that would, for example, uh, allow uh, Donetsk and uh, Lukansk in the east some uh, degree of autonomy uh, within a united um, Ukraine. Obviously, for Russia, uh, Crimea is a different question. And it's true that that violates, um, um, I think, the UN Charter, um, you know, that would have been agreed in, what, 44, 45 or thereabouts. Either way, uh, this is about uh, not re redrawing, and, uh, um, you know, boundaries and conquering foreign territory after the experience of uh, Europe in particular and the Nazi regime. So where are we at? Well, the problem is that what we've got, I think, um, is a situation of where anything that happens uh, could be used as a trigger for war. 
Uh, and of course, what we've got on the Ukrainian side is those that don't recognize uh, the rights of uh, these uh, Russian people in particular in the East, or for that matter, Russian people in Ukraine, full stop, let alone the um, annexation uh, of uh, Crimea, uh, that uh, uh, these people, um, you know, talk about Russian imperialism and, um, uh, you know, basically um, how the Russians are foreigners uh, in Ukraine. And the point about these people is they're not just a point of view. Um, what they are is integral uh, to the armed forces of Ukraine. Um, I think they have a semi-autonomous uh, position, but these people are armed and very dangerous. So I'm thinking of the right block. I'm thinking of the Azov uh, Brigade. Um, th th these people are quite capable of um, uh, staging some sort of provocation in the East in the hope perhaps uh, that the West uh, will come to their aid or uh, that uh, this can be a prelude to driving out um, Russian uh, forces. And there clearly are Russian forces in the East of Ukraine, let alone uh, Crimea. Obviously they're in Crimea, there's historically Russian uh, bases there that was agreed in 1991. Okay, so from our point of view, um, we do not adhere, adhere to the UN Charter of um, the, you know, the unviability, uh, the unviolability um, um, of uh, borders and uh, um, that. We don't view that as a, a principle. Um, for example, uh, if we take uh, Great Britain, uh, we're in favour of the federalisation of Great Britain, uh, the Ireland of Great Britain. But on the other hand, when it comes to the United Kingdom, we are definitely in favour of redrawing the borders. Uh, we're in favour of abolishing the border north and south in Ireland. And we're in favour of the separation uh, of Ireland. Hopefully, you know, we can federate again or merge together in a, a greater European a context, who knows? Either way, that's the position of the CPGB. And it's not uh, that we apply, uh, um, how should we put it, uh, these principles universally or automatically, that what we're saying is that self-determination is one of the weapons in our armory, and we apply it in general where there is a genuine national question in existence. But it also ought to be emphasized that we don't view it as an absolute principle. And it's just worthwhile thinking back uh, to Lenin's, and I, th I know I've said this before, but Lenin's famous example that he used in uh, The Right of Nations and Self-Determination, his pamphlet on, on the question, where he used the example from a few years before, 1905, when Norway separated from Sweden. And he said, well, look, they can do it peacefully. You know, it doesn't require a war. It can be done in a very civilized way. It was, there was no shots fired as far as I know. Again, as I've pointed out, that this was a unity of crowns, not states. Nonetheless, Norway separated. My guess is, I ought to go away and look all this stuff up. My guess is, this is the British Empire uh, behind the scenes, pulling Norway into its sphere of influence, as opposed to Sweden, 
um, which is in the German sphere um, of um, influence. So this is a imperial tussle um, for dominance uh, in Europe going on. And what Lenin says, well, of course, if the separation of Norway um, it, uh, triggered a war, then socialists would oppose uh, Norway separating. And it's in that context that uh, I'm approaching uh, the question of um, Ukraine. Um, we don't want a European war um, over uh, Ukraine. We don't want a European war uh, over uh, the east of Ukraine um, or Crimea. And, um, you know, we're not going to put ourselves in the position of... Um, I should put it, giving, giving foreign policy advice to the Boris Johnson uh, government or any government that follows uh, Boris Johnson. But what I would say is that at the present time, uh, I find it very unfortunate that sections of the left are basically echoing uh, the line of um, the Foreign Office in Westminster and um, uh, the State Department um, in Washington. Uh, i.e. Uh, we stand for the territorial integrity uh, of Ukraine and um, the right of Ukraine uh, to self-determination. Uh, and if that's violated, uh, then we would view that, this is, this is uh, US-UK imperialism talking, then we would view that as an act of aggression, then we'd view that as war. Well, as I said, given uh, the two people's republic to People's Republics in, in the East and the annexation uh, of Crimea, um, that's already happened. Uh, there's already been uh, aggression. Um, so that war uh, um, is clearly uh, a danger, but as I've argued, I don't think that involves the conquest uh, of Ukraine. I don't think that's practical politics. And indeed, in the Russian press, I don't know when, but relatively shortly after uh, the annexation of um, Crimea, there was talk of uh, annexing uh, the two eastern uh, provinces, um, which themselves have been um, dissected, um, and annexing them um, into Russia. And actually, Putin turned around and said, uh, no, uh, that would be viewed as a provocation quote, um, unquote. Okay, so as I said, um, the problem that I've got is that the left is echoing um, the, the Foreign Office. And uh, we have this organization uh, called the Ukraine Solidarity um, Campaign. Uh, you look at its um, principles, it, they're very brief. Basically, what they purport to do is stand in solidarity with the labor movement and the left in Ukraine, very worthy. But that goes hand in hand uh, with the demand for self-determination for Ukraine and opposition to, quote unquote, Russian imperialism and Western imperialism. Well, as I've argued, you know, if you, if you want to call uh, Russia today uh, imperialist, fair enough. Um, it's as imperialist as um, imperial China or imperial Rome. Uh, that's true. It's a great power. Uh, but what it isn't uh, is um, an imperialist power 
um, of the sort, certainly uh, described by Lenin, uh, which is about dividing the world, exporting capital um, um, and all the rest of it. Um, there's an article just as a throwaway in the, I think the Sunday Times today, uh, about young Russians buying up uh, big, big properties in, in London. And that's where um, Russian money uh, goes. It's not operating as capital, self-expanding value. Uh, this is something uh, that is being invested in lifestyle. And uh, the money is being channeled out uh, of Russia um, for the children <laughs> to live a billionaire lifestyle. So, you know, there's a six million house owned by the grandson of someone or other. There's a 200 million pound estate in Surrey, along with a big mansion owned by X, Y and Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the normal pattern um, with Russian money. Um, and at the moment, at least, uh, that hasn't been clamped down on uh, by the British government. These people still are operating a sort of cosmopolitan life of, you know, there they are in um, St. Petersburg or Moscow. The next day they're in Paris, the day after they're, they're in London, before they fly off to their other home in, in New York. Okay, so. Just a last um, footnote to all of that. Um, from the point of view of Ukraine and the Ukrainian government, it's certainly true that sometimes they are um, trying to damp down uh, talk of war. Uh, that's true. And that's because uh, Ukraine wants to keep uh, foreign investment, German investment, French investment, British, American, whatever, Chinese uh, investment. And we are talking about capital uh, uh, in that context. Um, and clearly talk of war um, doesn't encourage them to invest. It does the opposite. It, it, uh, it, it, it encourages them to take out their capital and put it somewhere safe. But at the same time, what we have uh, is the mobilization of extra forces in Ukraine and the uh, ready receipt um, of British and crucially American uh, anti-tank, anti-aircraft and other such uh, military uh, equipment. Um, so mobilization is going on as we speak. The money has been put in uh, to pay uh, for this mobilization. Remember, this is a pretty cash-strapped uh, government, corrupt, oligarchical. Um, nonetheless, the money is there to mobilize uh, reserves, and they're being equipped with um, pretty effective uh, weaponry. Whether it's enough, whether it's effective enough, uh, against uh, Russian forces, I'm in no position uh, to judge. What I do know is that the introduction of the Stinger missile, just that, the Stinger missile in Afghanistan was a game changer. It really did put uh, at risk uh, Russian air superiority, along with the much more humble, uh, but no less effective, um, you know, unmanned explosive devices along roads. Uh, which could blow up anything other than, um, you know, a fortified uh, tank or um, armoured car, anything else, bump. Um, so British Land Rovers were an easy target. I don't know about Humvees, 
uh, but I suspect you could do them as well. Anyway, moving on from that, we have the uh, announcement in Beijing um, of the, let me quote it, the no limits alliance between Russia and China. And what we need to understand there is that Russian trade will be directed increasingly towards China. And therefore, you know, in terms of uh, the supply of uh, gas and oil, it will be from Siberia. And uh, that's where China will be getting um, that from, as well as obviously, I don't know to what degree, but to some degree, Iran, uh, but increasingly less uh, the Middle East. So that's going on. And as I understand it, Russian trade with China is now worth something like 146 billion a year. That's not massive, but it's significant, but one would expect it uh, to grow. What's the no limits mean? I, I really don't know. Um, nonetheless, um, what I would say is that it's interesting to note at least that on the far right of the mainstream in America, so not the loony, um, you know, Proud Boys, uh, Fringe and the militias, uh, but the slightly less insane uh, wing of the Republican Party, there are voices that are saying that, you know, we've handled Russia all the wrong way, uh, that, you know, we push NATO uh, to the east, um, you know, we provoke them over the possibility of Georgia and Ukraine joining NATO. What do we expect under those circumstances? And those voices will now be saying and are saying what we've managed to do is push Russia into the arms uh, of China. And I would say that any general, even an armchair general like myself would uh, say that, you know, what strategy should consist of is not uniting your enemies, uh, but dividing them, pick them off one by one. And uh, American, and we're talking about Republican and Democrat foreign policy, and with Britain acting as the poodle, of course, you know, it's managed to pull off um, um, uh, a feat of, dip uh, it's managed to pull off a diplomatic coup by accident. So where you had the genius of uh, Henry Kissinger and the meeting between Nixon and, um, and Mao, which we'll be talking about in a future uh, communist uh, forum in a, in a couple of um, weeks time, um, that was part of a master plan. Uh, and it worked brilliantly. Uh, it didn't uh, tilt the Vietnam War uh, in America's favor, uh, but it made, um, how should I put it, um, the Soviet position much more, um, how should I put it, exposed. It had uh, an enemy, and I know there'd been border clashes before that, but it had an enemy uh, to its south. And also internationally, just note China's sponsorship of various anti pro-Moscow liberation movements. So in South Africa, it backed the PAC. I know the PAC existed prior to that, uh, but it backed uh, um, other uh, movements in Mozambique, in Angola. Uh, it welcomed the um, Pinochet coup in Chile. Uh, you had Maoists uh, opening up with machine guns on the May Day demonstration. I, I remember that wasn't there, but I remember it, um, you know, opening up with machine guns, attacking the May Day, mass May Day demonstration 
um, in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey, and many other examples could be cited. So by accident, uh, what they've managed to do is overcome uh, that division uh, that Nixon uh, succeeded in exploiting. And of course, what you got in return uh, for that is historically uh, capped uh, with Chinese membership of the World Trade Organization. The belief was that uh, uh, the West, i.e. the United States, would uh, turn China into a semi-colony. That was the terms of the World Trade Organization. Uh, but China cheated and managed to use its integration, which has always denied the Soviet Union, uh, to lift itself economically in the main true uh, with capitalist uh, development, but lift itself uh, out of poverty um, into medium developed status, at least with the ambition of uh, doing greater things, but also setting it on the course uh, uh, to become an imperialist uh, power uh, in its own right, in a way that Russia isn't today and never was in an imperialist proper sense of the word um, when the Soviet Union um, existed. So that was by accident, which is a very stupid uh, uh, thing uh, to do. I mean, imagine trying to take on Russia and China at the same time. Not a good uh, uh, idea. Okay, back to Blighty. Uh, we've got the cost of living crisis, and I think it is a cost of living crisis. Inflation is predicted at 5.4% and rising. In one year, 5.4% is a something to most people's income. But of course, if you're on a fixed income, uh, and if you're on benefits, um, that can be actually uh, crippling uh, because all you need is a couple of years of frozen benefits and you are plunged into abject uh, uh, poverty. And already we have people talking about not being able to pay the bills. And this is before uh, you know, the gas and uh, electricity price hikes have really kicked in. There's been some creep, uh, but most people are on some sort of fixed contract, which comes to an end. So there'll be sharp um, increases in energy prices. There will also be sharp increases in petrol prices. Uh, and we should expect, especially if there's a war over Ukraine, that really uh, to shoot up. Because what America is willing to do in terms of its uh, um, conflict with Russia is to sacrifice Germany and make Germany more dependent um, on Middle Eastern oil, which it just happens to control. We also have in Britain, in order to pay for um, you know, social care, we have um, forthcoming national insurance um, increases. And to my surprise, and it genuinely is to my surprise, uh, what we have is reports of wages stagnating. I really did expect, and I still expect, uh, there to be a whole wave of wages struggles um, in the very near future. So what's happening is real wages are stagnating and faced with this cost of living crisis, uh, the danger is that they will go down. Now, under conditions of Brexit, uh, where you've got less foreign workers and where workers from Europe haven't got automatic access, uh, where you're in uh, conditions of uh, post-COVID, of where you know, places are opening up uh, again, uh, we know that there are all sorts of lightning struggles 
uh, taking place that just don't make the statistical uh, books. Um, but I would very much expect uh, these struggles uh, to intensify. And uh, Andrew Bailey, uh, governor of the Bank of England, can tell people to um, observe pay restraint. Well, when your living standards are falling, uh, Andrew, um, you know, keeping your living standards up, which have already been uh, depressed, especially if you're at the bottom end of the working class, you know, at the casualized end or, you know, on building sites, all of those uh, areas have seen their real wages go down. It's all very well telling people that. Uh, but what you're telling them to do is to endure poverty. And I don't see why people should uh, endure uh, poverty, not least, you know, uh, uh, accept lectures from someone in your uh, privileged uh, position. Meanwhile, um, having said that uh, I thought Boris Johnson's chances were 50-50 last week, I have to say, looking at the, the news over uh, the last seven days, my odds have somewhat narrowed. And um, if I was a betting person, and I'm not, you know, I'd say it's down to 60-40, 60 in favour of him going, 40 of him hanging on. Why? Because uh, what we've seen is his top uh, advisors, you know, chief of staff, uh, private um, secretary, chief press, policy chief, all depart, um, you know, together, um, and not least with, um, you know, criticisms of um, his um, slur against uh, Keir Starmer over the Jimmy Savile um, investigation and non-prosecution. Uh, and we're still waiting uh, for the police report and we're still waiting for the full version uh, of the Sue Gray report. All I would say is remember this, uh, that uh, the hapless Theresa May survived uh, a vote of uh, confidence. Now, it's true she would have had a bigger proportion of ministers, given the size of the parliamentary conservative party to rely on. Uh, these people, you know, would uh, in general vote to um, in confidence for the leader that they they serve. Remember that she was operating um, for half the time without an, an, a, a parliamentary majority. She had to rely on the DUP. Boris Johnson's got a swollen majority of 80. So given those new statistics, it requires, as I understand it, is it 54 letters uh, to the 1922 committee, the chair of the 1922 committee, to trigger a vote of confidence. Now, all I'm saying is that a vote of confidence doesn't mean a vote of no confidence. It's a triggering of a vote. And Boris Johnson's got at least 100 ministers and, um, how should you put it, people who want to become ministers uh, available on the payroll. OK, so there's still a long way to go. Uh, the calculation is simple. Do Tory uh, MPs want to risk a general election? It's not a constitutional requirement. We all know that. Nonetheless, the pressure from the press and popular perceptions, which have been, um, I should put it, um, fueled over uh, the last decade or so, is that you get a new leader and you have a general election to confirm their position as if you're living in a par uh, not a parliamentary system, but a presidential system. Remember Gordon Brown and the pressure that he was under 
when he took over from Tony Blair. It should have just been, well, the Labour Party's got a new leader, we've got a new prime minister, so what? But the press is hammering, hammering, hammering. Uh, there he is ahead in the opinion polls. He didn't go then, he, maybe he would have still lost. Either way, he was pushed in the direction of a general election uh, and Labour Party, of course, lost. Okay, so I don't know. Uh, of course, I don't. Um, all I would say, and that's what I've argued from the beginning of uh, Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party, don't write off Keir Starmer as someone who's not interested in winning the general election. Don't believe that all he's interested in is defeating uh, the left in the Labour Party. The left in the Labour Party is in disarray. In parliamentary terms, it, it, it barely registers. And from what I understand, it's dividing, isn't it, um, between the campaign group or split in the campaign group um, and some new grouping around Clive Lewis. Whatever the significance of that is, it hasn't got much significance as far as Keir Starmer is concerned. The significance is, to the extent that it matters still, uh, is the um, anti-Zionism um, equals anti-Semitism as a signal uh, that, uh, that Corbyn has been left behind and that he, as head of a Labour government, would be an absolute loyal um, lapdog uh, to US uh, imperialism. That, that is symbolic. So my guess is that Jeremy Corbyn will not be let back into the parliamentary Labour Party. Um, but that is for, as I said, for symbolic purposes, not because Keir Starmer fears that Jeremy Corbyn will stand against him for leader and this time would win. Uh, that possibility uh, doesn't exist um, at the present time. Okay, right. Israel-Palestine um, hasn't really made the news in Britain very much. I'm quite surprised, but maybe not. But in America, this report from Amnesty International um, has made it big time. And what we've had is the Republican Party denouncing this report by Amnesty International, which is called something along the lines of uh, Israeli, is, Israel's apartheid regime. That was denounced by the Republican Party um, in Congress uh, before it was published as a work of anti-Semitism. Obviously, it was also denounced as a work of anti-Semitism uh, by the Israeli government. And interestingly, but not surprisingly, showing the bipartisanship when it comes to foreign policy, the Democrats also lined up uh, to condemn it as um, uh, an example of anti-Semitism. The only exceptions that I know of is Betty McClum, Corey, I'm getting all these names wrong, I'm sure, Cory Bush, Ilham, uh, Omar, and Rashid Tibib. Uh, they're the only exceptions that I know of in terms of members of Congress on the, on the Democrat side. Uh, that um, um, haven't expressed that opinion, disassociated themselves uh, from that opinion. Now, it's just worth noting, uh, for the sake of a sane argument, um, I'm not going to go away and read the report. I've got other things to do. Uh, but I do read from the report uh, this quote, which is just worthwhile repeating. Amnesty International does not argue that the situation in Israel is the same or analogous to South Africa 
1948 to 1994. So my guess is uh, that what Amnesty International is doing is basing itself on some sort of UN-ish type uh, resolution that defines apartheid uh, in a particular way that fits Israel, as opposed to the color bar and, uh, you know, uh, the racial classification of the population and separate development and, you know, all the rest of the clutter uh, that you saw in the, with the nationalist regime in South Africa. Um, of course, we shouldn't imagine for a moment that the color bar was introduced by the nationalist regime in 48. Of course, it went back uh, to, at the very least, uh, to British colonialism. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Okay, so what this report says is that Israel systematically discriminates against Arab citizens of Israel. That's the first point. And then it says, of course, that it also systematically discriminates and oppresses uh, the Palestinians of the occupied uh, territories. And in reply to that, what uh, the defenders of Israel say is, what about Hamas? You know, what about um, um, these terrorist uh, attacks? You know, what about all these hostile Arab powers? Well, sorry, you know, when you go out and colonize somewhere and your aim is to replace the indigenous population, and that was the aim. What do you expect people to do? Uh, people do tend to resist. Um, it has to be pointed out, while in terms of their published works, the mainstream Zionists, you know, painted pictures of uh, uh, backward, culturally backward Arabs welcoming the Jews into Palestine and saying, oh, thank God we've got people who are delivering Western civilization to us. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Uh, the revisionist Zionists uh, actually said, don't kid yourselves, uh, that's not going to happen. And uh, well, lo and behold, it hasn't happened. Um, people who are colonized don't normally like it. I can't think of an example of where people actually welcome in their colonizers who are determined to exploit them and take away their land. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. Okay, so having established that, what I want to do is simply take a step back and make the point uh, that not only does Amnesty International not want to draw a direct parallel uh, between Israel and uh, South Africa, nor should we. So I'm not gonna get on my high horse about the word apartheid. It's a useful propaganda weapon. But from our point of view, I think it's worthwhile thinking about the work on colonialism done by Marx in Capital, um, also Karl Kortsky, um, and also, of course, Moshe Makover. And uh, at the risk of vast oversimplification, and it is, uh, I think we've got two categories to work on here, uh, and that's a work colony and an exploitation colony. And uh, South Africa was a classic example of an of a exploitation uh, colony um, that, yes, you put in people, but their main job is to oversee uh, the labor of the native population and extract wealth uh, in that way. On the other hand, we have examples such as the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, I think falls into that category as well, except that didn't involve the extermination of the native people of where you have a work colony. Um, 
And what that involves is exporting people who then do the actual work. And that was the aim of the original Zionists. If you look at their iconography, it was very Soviet. It was very Nazi. You know, the men had big, big muscles. They wanted to overcome the stereotypical uh, European Jew um, and instead remold the Jewish population by connecting it with industry and with agriculture. And with that would come muscles and you'd have a proper nation like the other nations. Well, I was about to say on the earth, but actually their model, of course, was uh, blood and soil um, along the European uh, model. Not only the Nazis, but other uh, right wing uh, uh, movements. So, OK, Israel falls into that uh, category. And as I've said, that while in New Zealand you didn't see the ex extermination of the native population, in large parts of Australia you most certainly did. Um, the Tasmanians were wiped out. Uh, the native population was much reduced, totally marginalised. The best lands were taken away. In general, uh, they weren't put to work. They were not considered fit uh, to work. And the same thing happened in the United States. The same thing happened in Canada. Uh, that the native population is confined to uh, reserves. Now, I know in South Africa you had Bantu stands, uh, but you also had uh, barracks where the workers were housed. So they might have been kicked back to the Bantu stands. Now, that's where their families might have been, uh, but you had um, barracks uh, for the male employees in the mines. Um, and uh, down at the bottom of every um, I was about to say middle class garden, uh, but it went into the working class. You'd have a shed of some sort where your servant lived. And the precise point is, uh, in, in terms of where I want to get to, is to discuss this question, which we touched upon uh, last week, is, is the population of a work colony uh, winnable uh, um, to the cause of socialism? Uh, is it winnable? Uh, to identify with the native population. It's hard. And uh, the example I want to use to begin with is South Africa. And uh, the example I'll give, I haven't got much time, is the, um, the Rand Rebellion. This was the rebellion uh, by white workers, crucially in the mines of uh, South Africa. So that's gold and uh, coal and diamonds, stuff like that. And what you had is the bosses in the midst of a slump in the price of gold wanting to employ black labor, not least at a supervisory uh, level. Um, and white workers went on strike against that. And their strike basically took an insurrectionary form. So they took over two towns entirely. I can give you their names if I can. Oh, there you are. Benoni. I don't know where exactly that is. I would guess somewhere in the central belt and also a place called Brackpan, but also in the suburbs of Johannesburg, you had uh, these, these insurrectionary workers uh, taking over and the Australian, Australian, the South African prime minister Smuts, Smuts um, sent in 20,000 troops and also sent in um, the air force uh, to bomb them has to be said that the bombing wasn't particularly successful. I think they managed to bomb a church uh, that was full uh, at the time. Um, either way, 200 people died. Uh, this movement was forcibly suppressed. 
It was supported uh, by the South African Labour Party, and it was also critically supported by the Communist Party of South Africa. Uh, Communist Party of South Africa, its criticism was precisely the racism. It said that there should be workers' unity. Nevertheless, it supported uh, that um, uprising. I've also just read, just looking up this stuff, uh, a telegram, a secret telegram sent by Lenin uh, to Grigory Zinoviev, the head of the Communist International. He says, Grigory, send our agents to South Africa as quickly as possible to find out what's going on here. Uh, we need information and we need our comrades to um, make links with what's going on in South Africa. So they thought this was very interesting. And, you know, you've got to make this very, very secret. Don't even reproduce this note that I've sent you. Don't get it retyped um, uh, because we don't want to let the British uh, um, in on what, what we're doing. Also should be pointed out um, that um, a little while, but, you know, in terms of events, historically different times, uh, Comintern definitively came out with a nativist uh, position. That was at the sixth Congress of Comintern. That was under the leadership of Bukharin and Stalin. And um, they came out and said, you've got to base the party on the black population. Um, that's the only way uh, forward. Now, I just wanted to finish with this uh, by saying that the problem that you've got in terms of strategy is if you simply follow a nativist policy in terms of some sort of schema of the bourgeois revolution, um, and I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, classic Menshevism um, and classic Stalinism, uh, for that matter, when I'm using that term, not Lenin and, um, you know, uninterrupted revolution. The problem is precisely that if you simply just demand equal rights, um, these workers are going to turn around and say, well, thank you very much for nothing, but no thanks. Um, just as an anecdote, I can remember I had a, not a friend, but I knew someone at my secondary school whose uh, parents took them off to South Africa for a new and wonderful life. And they had a wonderful new life. They're there, they had the, the swimming pool, they were working class people, had the swimming pool, uh, but they were shocked and she was shocked when she, they came back and they came back to, do you know there's rampant racism in South Africa? And I, I think I was a young communist by then. I sort of would go, yeah, <laughs> sort of like tell me something I don't. But this was a shock to her and her family. They came back. But most of them don't come back. Most of them get used to the swimming pool and the servant and the privileged lifestyle. And if you tell them you can live like the blacks in terms of equality, uh, these people would turn around to you and say no. And that's the situation in Israel, that simply raising the question of equality, we should have equal voting rights, equal citizenship rights, equal trade union rights within the confines of a single bourgeois capitalist Palestine uh, that is not a seller. Hence Moshe, I think the significance of his uh, writing saying, you've got to raise the question of socialism and you've got to raise the wider uh, picture of um, the Arab nation and the project of the working class leading the project of Arab unification as the working class was aiming to lead the project of German unification under Marx and Engels 
that's our perspective. And we've got to have a perspective of the working class coming to power. If we're going to have a hope of either neutralizing uh, this section of the population or splitting it or winning sections over to our side. And the precise problem is if you don't win them over to your side, you've got the problem of a nuclear armed uh, Israel uh, that might well fight uh, to the last man. And that's the danger. That's why you need a strategy, at least. You should be fighting for a strategy that divides uh, this population, that seeks to win over uh, this uh, population. Right, last point, and this is uh, 54. So I try to not speak more than an hour. Uh, I just wanted to mention this um, um, organization called Aduk, Aduk, which apparently means in Hebrew, I think it's Hebrew, I, I can't imagine it being in anything other than Hebrew, it means strictly religious. So what's the significance of it? This is the um, um, operation uh, that uh, Iran apparently was engaged in to um, spread false information and um, split uh, the orthodox population in Israel um, from um, the govern governing coalition. So it was putting out propaganda along the lines of, don't you know the government's controlled by Muslims? Like you could tell, you know, told me, what? There's one Muslim um, member of the Knesset um, who supports the um, existing government. Now that's what they're talking about. So. But this is all about um, don't trust these uh, people. Um, they're you know, wanting to do bad for you. They want to discriminate against you. It's to sow division uh, where there is already uh, division um, in Israel. But what you've got to remember, of course, is that the divisions in Israel um, do have a tendency to move that population further and further to the right. So again, as Moshe has pointed out, you don't have the normal, um, you know, in terms of our history in Europe, um, the normal left-right division with the working class occupying the left and the petty bourgeois and the petty and the bourgeoisie occupying the right. In Israel, uh, because it's a settler colonial project, the working class tends to vote, the bottom end especially of the working class tends to vote extreme right parties, chauvinist parties, because that end of the working class faces the danger of competition from Arab labor, uh, that uh, employers will take on casuals and they'll take on Palestinian casuals who are only too willing uh, to undercut uh, um, the wages of Jewish uh, uh, workers. So you have that tendency for that section of the population to vote for discrimination for measures against um, both the Arab Israeli population, let alone against labor coming in uh, from the West Bank or um, uh, Gaza. Okay, but what I wanted to say is that that made news, at least it made news on my sort of BBC um, radar. Uh, what doesn't make news because it's just viewed as normal is the BBC Persian service, uh, which broadcasts, I don't know how many hours a day, is it 24 hours a day, uh, to Iran, uh, Voice of America, uh, all the Saudi financed uh, uh, channels, 
um, that are broadcasting um, propaganda uh, into uh, Iran, not only on the basis of supporting regime change from above, and people sort of get a very good idea, well, you know where you're coming from. Look at what that's brought to Syria. Look what that's brought in Libya. Look what that's brought in terms of next door Iraq. Look what that's brought in terms of next door Afghanistan. No, thank you. But also more skilled uh, forms of uh, propaganda. So, for example, I don't know, uh, you know, because I, I don't understand Farsi. Uh, what they're saying in Farsi when it comes to, for example, uh, BBC. What I would point out, though, of course, is the BBC um, Foreign Af um, World Service isn't the same as the domestic service. It's paid by the Foreign Office. It's an arm of the Foreign Office. It's not paid by the license fee. All I would say is it's a lot more skilled um, than the Voice of America. I mean, I'll just leave you with this. Um, I do remember sitting there late at night because I used to listen to the World Service. There wasn't anything else on. BBC used to close down at about 12 o'clock. I can remember listening to the World Service um, maybe three o'clock in the morning. And um, they were reporting the Portuguese Revolution. And there were two Portuguese journalists who were reading out the script. And then they just burst out laughing and said, well, this is a load of shit. And they're just lying uh, to you. All I would say is that normally the BBC... Uh, goes in for more subtle uh, methods of propaganda. Um, and uh, therefore, you know, it, it's funny, isn't it, that uh, a duck is considered exceptional and really dirty and was instantly being taken down from Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, but uh, the American, Saudi and British operations are just viewed as um, the norm, uh, such as the world that we live in. That's it, Stan. Thank you very much.